Thank you, Kathy and Joan, for leading us in some wonderful time of musical worship. And now we're going to spend some time in God's Word as we continue worshiping together. And uh, we are continuing today in a series through the Gospel of Mark that we've been in for uh, quite a while. We did take a break last week. I hope you were blessed as I was by uh, the message from our missionary, Ron Whistler, as uh, he and Jackie uh, have dedicated their lives to bringing the good news of Jesus uh, to the people of Indonesia. So we are continuing in our series, uh, the Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. Today we come to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. We're calling this Discipleship Demands. Discipleship Demands. In August of 2003, the Church of the Holy Cross in New York City was broken into two times. In the first break-in, the thieves made away with a, a metal money box that had been uh, resting next to a candle rack inside the front entrance. And then a few weeks later, the vandals escaped with something much more valuable. They unbolted a four-foot-long, 200-pound plaster Jesus from a meditation area, taking the statue of Christ, but leaving behind the wooden cross on the wall. Now, the, the church caretaker, a man by the David, name of David James, confessed his bewilderment at this. He said, they just decided we're going to leave the cross and take Jesus. We don't know why they just took him. We figure if you want the crucifix, you want the whole crucifix. In other words, Mr. James was saying, if you want Jesus, you take his cross too, Right? In a way, I kind of understand those thieves, though. You know, I like the figure of Jesus. I like the insightful and compassionate way that he treated people. I admire the clarity and the balance of his ethical teaching, love his stories. The character of Christ is the ideal of health and wholeness towards which we all should want to grow more and more. The whole world would be better if more of us lived Christ's way. And yet, according to almost every study I read, millions of people, millions of people, even those who hardly ever darken the door of a church building or have uh, those that have serious questions about God, they are still attracted to the figure of Jesus. Now, as for his cross, though, that's a little more complicated, isn't it? Some of us prefer not to get too close to that. Perhaps there's already enough violence and blood and cruelty in the world. Hasn't religion often wrapped itself up in that same kind of horror in the name of God? Who wants to associate Jesus with that sort of thing? And so, in some way, we can appreciate the sentiment of taking Jesus but leaving the cross behind. And yet we want to explore that idea just a bit more today. Two weeks ago, in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we came to the very center of the whole book. As Jesus left Galilee and the enthusiastic, accepting crowds, and, and he turned towards Jerusalem, towards Judea, where he knew that opposition would increase, where skepticism would grow. Everything in the Gospel of Mark led up to that point, and everything after it really began at that point. Almost no one who had seen or heard Jesus thought that he was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was clearly more, but how much more? We learn that those people 
in the first century that their spiritual eyesight was obscured. They were blinded by their own ideas and preconceptions and personal desires regarding Jesus. And we learn that sometimes we are as well. Well, today we come to what we might call the beginning of the end or the rest of the story. In our text today, Jesus makes a startling statement that challenges his listeners, both those in the first century, and I think that we'll discover it's pretty challenging for us that would hear it today. And so I want you to listen to these words, Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Well, the great 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And so as we consider this passage, I want to look with you at four conditions that Christ gives us if we are serious about following him. And then we're going to conclude with three cautions for those of us who do make that decision to follow Jesus. We're going to start in verse 34 where we see Jesus' call and calling the crowds to him with his disciples. He's calling the people to kind of huddle up together. Kind of imagine that as Jesus calls everybody around. Everybody come, listen to what I have to say. It's because he has something very important that he wants them to know. And in his statement here, he describes what it means to truly follow him. Because the offer of salvation is for everyone, but there are demands for disciples that we cannot easily dismiss. While the call is for everyone, there are also some conditions to following Christ. That's why Jesus uses that word, if. And so let's explore this. The first condition or demand is that a person must have a desire to be a disciple. What does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me. We could say that the heart of the matter is the matter of our heart. The phrase, would come, it has the idea of intentionality. It involves our will. In order to walk with Jesus, you must first want to walk with Jesus. The New King James renders it like this, whoever desires to come after me. The New American Standard puts it like this, if anyone wishes to follow me. The New Living Standard puts it this way, if any of you wants to be my follower. Do you pick up the idea of intentional will and desire there? Do we have a desire to follow Jesus? I love that the call of Jesus goes out to everyone, to anyone that was in the crowd, 
It goes to the curious, that, that big crowd that was around him. It goes to the committed, that would be those, those 11 close disciples that stayed faithful to Jesus. It even goes out to the counterfeit. Who was that? Well, Judas was there as well. And it strikes me that those three groups are still present today listening to Jesus. Some are curious about Christ. Others are committed to him. And some have a counterfeit faith. But notice that Jesus is about to give the same message to all three of those groups as he calls everyone to him. Notice that phrase, come after me. Come after me. That has the idea of movement, of lining up behind Jesus, following him wherever he goes. Did you ever play follow the leader when you were a little kid? You had to follow the leader wherever they went. Do what they do. That's what Jesus is saying. Come after me. You have to desire to come after Jesus. We don't walk in front of him and then ask him to catch up with our way. Come on, Jesus. Come on with me. No, we get behind him. We go and we walk where he walks. We walk after him, not ahead of him. And so do we have the desire to follow Jesus as one of his disciples? You see, we won't follow him if we don't want to. I have a friend, he has this, this saying, people do what they want to do. He'll be talking about something and he'll just say, well, people do what they want to do. And that sounds so simple, but it's true, isn't it? People do what they want to do. Some aren't following the Savior simply because they don't have any desire to. You see, until you desire to be a disciple, you won't be one. If you desire him more than anyone else or anything else, then you will become a disciple. One of the psalmists put it this way in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. What do you desire most of all? The crowd gathered around, had seen jaw-dropping miracles, healings. They'd heard the truth from Jesus. It was, it was so wonderful, Jesus' words, that it was like bread for the heart. We just studied a few weeks ago about 4,000 men plus their families had listened to Jesus for three days despite running out of food. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus? All those people, the crowd, the disciples alike, they couldn't get enough of Jesus. And so when Jesus begins his statement by saying, if any of you would like to be my disciple, I kind of just picture people kind of smiling and nudging each other and getting ready to, to wave their hands. Me, pick me, Jesus, pick me. But then suddenly, in the midst of that statement, Jesus kind of hammers his point home. It's not enough just to have the desire. It starts with desire, but Jesus' second condition or demand raises the stakes pretty dramatically. The second condition is denial. Let him deny himself. Wow, now everything within us screams against those words. To deny, what does that mean? It means to refuse. One Bible dictionary puts it this way. To disown and renounce self and to subjugate all works, interests, and enjoyments. That doesn't sound very fun to me. Does it sound very fun to you? 
Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I want us to understand what this is. Denying self. It's not the same thing as self-denial. We understand what self-denial is. It's like, okay, I'm not going to eat chocolate for a month. I'm going to be self-denial. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give up a night of fun so that I can study for an exam. I'm full of self-denial. I'm going to stick to the budget this time. I'm not going to blow it. Self-denial. But denying self, that's a little different. It means that I stop thinking that I'm always right. I stop living in my own power and I refuse my own pleasures because I come to realize I don't belong to myself anymore. Paul describes this well in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In short, if I'm going to be a person that denies myself, I must give up my right to run my own life because I no longer own my life. I've been bought with the blood of Christ, and now I belong to him. This word deny, it's only used in two contexts in the Gospels. There's this one that we're talking about now, and the other one is coming later. It's when Peter denies Jesus. You remember that story, right? What did Peter do? He swore to the people who were sure that he was one of Jesus' disciples. He said, I don't know the man you're talking about. I don't know him. That's denial. So what does it look like? What does it look like to deny yourself? Jesus says we have to deny ourselves. It's as though we look in a mirror and say, I'm not with him. I'm not with him. He's not who I follow, not who I believe in. He is no longer who I stand for. Denying myself is saying to that guy in the mirror, I know you want to be treated well, but we're going to put on an apron and roll up our sleeves and we're going to serve others. It's saying to that guy in the mirror, I know that you think you deserve to be first but we're going to go last. It's saying to that, that person in the mirror, I know that you think I ought to give her a piece of my mind, but this is a time when Jesus would be silent. It's kind of like breaking up with yourself. You ever been in a romantic relationship and there was that breakup and there's all the angst and all that stuff that goes on? Have you ever broken up with yourself? That's what self-denial is. That's what self-denial is. There's really no room for two in the relationship. Either self is on the throne of our life or the Savior is. And so the first two conditions that Jesus has for us are desire and denial. And then as if those aren't difficult enough, Jesus raises the bar a bit more because next he calls us to die. What does he say next? And take up his cross. Crucifixion was a horrible punishment. And it was common in first century Judea. 
In fact, there's estimates that over 30,000 people were nailed to crosses during the lifetime of Jesus. That's a lot of crucifixions. Everyone in Judea knew that the cross was an instrument of shame and suffering and torture and death. And when a person took up his cross, he was beginning a death march. And so when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, that was a pretty jaw-dropping statement. Pick me, Jesus, pick me. Carry your cross. Can you see the hands going down? Can you see the smiles dissolving? Whoa, what's this guy talking about? Now, unfortunately, we have romanticized the cross. We've turned it into something that we hang on our wall or we put on a chain around our neck, a pretty neat piece of jewelry. And when we do reference this verse, we often say something like, well, I guess it's just the cross I have to bear. And we're talking about, you know, some difficult person in our life, some obnoxious relative or something, or, you know, an illness or an affliction that we have, or maybe it's a bad boss at work. It's the cross I have to bear. But let's remember, the cross was carried by condemned criminals. And it ended with a humiliating, excruciating execution. Everyone knew the person carrying the cross was saying goodbye to everything that there was behind and that there was no turning back. So friends, we are called to carry our cross. What does that mean? It means we're called to crucify our self-fulfillment, our self-promotion, our self-centeredness. We are to die to our rights, the right to be right, the right to take revenge, the right for justice, the right to fight. Those are fleshly ideals that we hold on to. And if we're to follow Jesus, we're in the business of killing that stuff off, carrying the cross. One commentator put it this way, a religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. See, Christ lays claim to our ambitions and our money and our minds and our work and our children and our futures. As Christ followers, as Christ followers we can't present to those that don't know Jesus, a Christianity that will, will make life better. When in fact, in fact, in Jesus, often life becomes more difficult. That's true. Sometimes following Jesus makes life more difficult. Because the priceless value of knowing him, it comes at a cost. We are no longer our own. Everything we are, everything we do, must be submitted to him. People carrying crosses were people going to execution. And those who listened to Jesus that day, they knew how ghastly crucifixion was. So there was surely a moment of shock when Jesus said to that crowd, 
pick up your cross and follow me. What they didn't know yet was how that command would soon become utterly reframed. Where's Jesus going? He knows exactly where he's going. He's already begun carrying the cross. Long before he gets to Jerusalem, he's carrying the cross, marching towards his own death. Now, throughout time in history, there have been many Christian martyrs who have given up their life for the cause of Christ. But I don't think Christian martyrdom is what Jesus had in mind here. When Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. Take up your cross. He's not necessarily talking about martyrs. The really hard death that disciples have to face doesn't come at the hand of some persecutor. The really hard death is the sentencing and the execution of our own wills our own self-importance, our own agendas. That's the hard part. You know, when we are baptized into Christ, that wonderful picture, we are thrust into a grave and we're brought back up alive and clean. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that Jesus has given us of carrying our cross. Dying to self, raising to walk in newness of life. And then as, as Christ followers, we, we come around the table, as we have done already this morning, to take communion. And what are we doing there? We are remembering, remembering that the cross is the only way. I, I read a great story. Uh, a man was telling about uh, baptizing his adult son. The son ha had become a, a rebel and a prodigal, and he'd gone far away from family and away from God, but somehow, finally, he had returned to his family, to the roots of his faith, and here he was at his own baptism. His father was baptizing him, and the, the son said to the father, Dad, hold me under the water just a little extra long. I want to remember that I've died. Isn't that a great picture? What a great statement. I want to remember that I've died. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Well, after getting our desire right, denying ourselves, dying to sin, Jesus gives us this fourth condition for discipleship. It's in the last part of verse 34. It is devotion. Devotion, when Jesus says, Follow me. To follow means to go with. And the tense here is ongoing, meaning we are constantly following him. At the core, the word disciple means learning follower, a learning doing follower. That's what true devotion is. Jesus fought against having false converts by making sure that people knew that there was a cost to following him. I think of the, the rich young ruler that we're going to talk about in a few weeks in Mark chapter 10. You remember that story, though. He came running up to Jesus to find out how to obtain this awesome eternal life. And when Jesus challenged his idolatry and, uh, of self and his pursuit of his own passions and possessions, we read these very sad words. Verse 22 of chapter 10. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful. 
for he had many possessions. You know, I find it interesting. Jesus didn't chase after that man, did he? He didn't chase after him. And he didn't water down the demands of discipleship to make it easier for this man. Jesus doesn't lower the bar. Commitment to him is costly. Discipleship is demanding. The man was sad, but he couldn't come to deny himself or put to death his devotion to his stuff. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said it like this, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You see, cross bearers are called to follow the crucified one. Discipleship is demanding because we're called to die. In Luke 9, Luke adds that dying to self and to sin are to be happening on an ongoing basis. Listen to Luke's words as he he quotes Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so this whole dying to Jesus thing, it's not a a one and done deal. It's something that we're doing on an ongoing basis. And that's where the devotion comes into. What are you devoted to? What am I devoted to? Are we more devoted to Jesus or to having our way? You know, it's easy to add Jesus as a friend, kind of like a click of a button on Facebook. Oh, new friend. All right. Jesus is my friend. But it's much more difficult to be a follower. Jesus is not an app that we add to our life. He's not a a service that we attend on Sunday when we can fit it into our busy schedule. Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is not a preference. Jesus is not a feeling. He is Lord. And because he's Lord, he wants our whole life. And so are we willing to renounce People and possessions and positions and preferences and self. Are we willing to do that in order to follow Jesus? Will we put our faith over our finances and our family and over anything else that has become first position in our life? What is it that is keeping you from following him Daily. Jesus' words in Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so once again, we're reminded salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And so after this serious call to discipleship, these four conditions, desire and denial and death and devotion, Jesus concludes with three cautions. And these cautions are for those of us who would say, yeah, I'm willing. I want to be the follower. I want to follow Jesus. Okay. Okay, Jesus says. But remember, if you're going to follow me, Here's some important cautions. Caution number one, if you focus only on your own life, you'll lose it. That's in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. 
if we try to hold on to what we have, we're going to miss out on what Jesus wants to give us. When we settle the surrender issue, when we commit to follow Christ at any cost, that is when we will end up saving our life for eternity. Because that's what Jesus does for us. And then don't miss that, that additional clause that Mark adds in there. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We folks, as followers, if we are proclaiming the name of Jesus, if we are applying his name to us, I am a disciple of Jesus, then I am saying that I am willing to lose my life in service. Service to my Lord and to my King and to his gospel the good news, and to sharing that good news with others. We are called to spread the good news in the community that he's placed us in and wherever else that he calls us. That's caution number one. Caution number two, if you focus only on your own success, you'll lose your soul. Jesus asked two really probing questions here in verses 36 and 37. Here's what he says to the crowd, and he's saying it to us as well. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I want you to see that Jesus is using some financial terms here, some economic terms. Profit, forfeit, return. You could gain everything. Your bank accounts could be overflowing. But you could lose your soul. You could make a lot and end up in hell. He's using economic terms, but he's talking about a lot more than money here, folks. He's talking about our willingness to give in and to give up. To move away from our own success. Focus on what he calls us to. And then caution number three. If we're ashamed of Christ, he'll be ashamed of us. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You see, there is a cost to discipleship. But there's an even greater cost to not following Christ. We are called to confess him and to not be ashamed of him. Which, by the way, is becoming increasingly more difficult in our culture. Jesus called his own generation adulterous and sinful. And things have not changed much in the 21 centuries that have passed, right? There's a lot of adultery and sinfulness going on around us. And it's hard to proclaim the name of Jesus. But friends, we cannot shrink back from our Savior. We cannot waffle with his words as we live in this adulterous and wicked generation. Because guess what? This is not all there is. And he's got so much more for us. And when we become engulfed and overwhelmed in this generation, oh no, what's going to happen? What's going on? How do they think about me? Oh, oh, we're stuck. May we have the vision to see beyond this generation 
to the generations ahead that Jesus has for us when we remain faithful as his disciples. Michael Nanande was a Nigerian. They said his face projected a nearly supernatural joy. Michael was one of 270 students that were studying at the Good Shepherd Seminary in Kaduna State in Nigeria. And on the evening of January 8, 2020, his world was upended when an armed gang, disguised in military fatigues, breached the gates of the school. They quickly snagged four students, including Michael, and they made their escape. By the end of that month, three of the four students had been freed, but not Michael. A few days later, he was found dead, his body dumped on the side of a road, massacred by his kidnappers. Michael's twin brother, Raphael, spoke to the Nigerian press the week that he and his brother would have turned 19. He saluted the path of faith and service that his brother had selected. He said, Michael was so much committed and loved the things of God. My consolation is that he did not die in vain pursuing things of the world, but rather he died in the service to God, training for the ministry. Well, it remained a mystery why Michael had been killed while the other captives had been freed. The same negotiators had been working on behalf of all four abductees. Some of the local and international authorities thought that Michael may have been disposed of as a, as a negotiating tool to increase the ransom for the others. But no one knew for sure until April 30th of 2020. That's the day that the murderer, the murderer who had been caught a few weeks before, was interviewed in prison by the Nigerian newspaper. So why did he kill Michael? Well, this man openly and even brazenly told the press, he did not allow me any peace. He just kept preaching to me his gospel. I did not like the confidence he displayed in his faith. And I descend, decided to send him to an early grave. Now that is a sobering story about persecution. You know, sometimes Christians are persecuted. Sometimes they're persecuted because they haven't acted very Christ-like. But Jesus also said that we would be hated for his namesake. In other words, we would be persecuted for our very Christ-likeness. And so how about you? Could it be said of you, she just kept preaching to me her gospel? Or could it be said of you, he just keeps displaying his faith in confidence? You see, these are the demands of discipleship. They're not easy demands. But they are the demands that Christ has set before us. And as his followers, thankfully, he has given us his Holy Spirit to help us to do the things we could never do on our own. But with his strength and his power, we can 
pursue a life of denial and devotion and dedication as we follow our Lord and Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, these are hard words that come from our Savior Jesus. Father, we pray that as we leave this place today, that you would embolden us. Father, that you would give us the determination and the desire to pursue the difficult path of discipleship. And Father, when we are tempted by the, the shiny things around us and by the people around us that would pull us away from you, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us Lord, that you would turn us back onto the path. Father, we thank you for stories like the story of Michael. Such a young man, but so faithful to you. Father, we thank you that that story gives us hope that we too can remain faithful until the end. Father, guide us. Direct us, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to sing our closing song. And today, our elders are going to be in the back corner. I see that a couple of our elders are already back there in the prayer corner. It just occurs to me that perhaps, perhaps on your way out, even as the song is being sung, you might make your way back there for our elders just to briefly pray with you, to encourage you, in whatever area that you might be struggling with in this area of discipleship. Because life is a struggle. And this is a hospital, not a hall of fame. We're here to help one another heal and be strengthened to get back on the path. And that's what we want to do today. And so I don't want you to leave in discouragement thinking this is hard. But I want you to leave encouraged, knowing that your brothers and sisters are praying for you that God's Holy Spirit is within you and that your shepherds are praying for you. And so I hope that some of you will take advantage of that opportunity to pray with our, our elders, our shepherds today. Let's stand together as the ladies lead us in this closing song.